Welcome to Israel War Briefing, a podcast from the Jewish Chronicle offering deep insight into the crisis in the Jewish state as it continues to unfold. I'm Jake Wallace-Simons, editor of the Jewish Chronicle and author of Israelophobia, the newest version of the oldest hatred and what to do about it. In each episode, I'll be asking an expert commentator for their analysis of the latest developments and reflections on what comes next. So today is the 8th of November. It's the 63rd day of the war. And joining me from Jerusalem is the journalist, author of four nonfiction books about Israel, Matty Friedman, uh, who's born in Toronto, but now lives, as I said, in Jerusalem. His latest book is called Who By Fire. It's about the Yom Kippur War, funnily enough, 50 years ago, uh, almost to the day from October the 7th, when Leonard Cohen performed in the Sinai. So Matty, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, Matty, perhaps should we should we start with with your book and with Leonard Cohen and with the Yom Kippur War? I mean, it's, it's so uh, eerie how many resonances there are today from that from that period, which previously was one of the darkest, or probably the darkest in Israel's history. I'm not sure we can say that today. Yes, I think that might have changed. I spent many years writing this book about the Yom Kippur War through the very strange angle of one of the weirdest rock and roll tours of all time, which is this uh, concert tour that Leonard Cohen embarks on at the Sinai front in the middle of the war. And I spent a lot of time talking to veterans of that war. And it seemed to be the darkest moment in the history of Israel since 1948. This complete surprise. The country is euphoric after the 1967 victory and just does not see it coming. And on Yom Kippur, October 6th, 1973, there's a surprise attack on two fronts from the Egyptians and the Syrians, and the country is just reeling. And eventually Israel manages to kind of pull it together and, and win the war, but but Israel loses more than 2,600 fatalities. And in about three weeks in a country that was at the time barely 3 million people. So we're talking about a major catastrophe that the country really never recovers from. The politics change, the culture changes, the music changes. and and Israel after after Yom Kippur is a different country. And then fast forward almost exactly 50 years, as you said, 50 years and one day to October 7, 2023, and another devastating surprise, this time from, from Gaza. It also happens on a Jewish holiday, of course. It happens on Simchat Torah. And Israel is just not ready for it. And um, thousands of Hamas fighters come through the fence and just butcher hundreds and hundreds of civilians and overrun the defenders of the border and, and you know, launch us on this uh, terrible war that we're involved in right now. And, and, and I think that this moment might eclipse the Yom Kippur War as the darkest moment in Israel's history. I mean, if we're looking at 2,600 soldiers killed in three weeks, that's awful here. We lost 1,200 people, most of them civilians, in one day. And we saw sites that were reminiscent of the Jewish world before the state of Israel, you know, images that seem like pogroms, images that seem like the Holocaust, stories of kids hiding in closets and you know, people hiding under beds as people kind of go through their houses trying to kill them. So uh, for Israel, I think this trauma is probably deeper than the trauma of Yom Kippur and the country after this war won't be the one that it was before October 7. Well, you know, there's, there's been quite a lot uh, said about the similarities uh, between the Yom Kippur War and now. But what about the differences? I mean, it strikes me that this is 
probably the longest war Israel has ever fought. I mean, Israel normally is known for quick wars, um, particularly the Six Day War, obviously, but also, as you said, the Yom Kippur War was over in a matter of a couple of weeks. But this already has is several times that length. Um, what what effects do you think that has on on the country? We, we certainly haven't fought a war this long since. 1948 that was a long war of course it was a very different society at, at the time that war really starts at the end of 1947 and only ends at the very beginning of 1949 so that was quite long but you know, the context is completely different i think maybe we can look at the fighting in lebanon in the 80s and 90s that was kind of protracted and painful was it exactly a war we didn't call it a war i've written about that as well and i participated in that little non-war as a soldier but yes, I think that we're in something that's quite unprecedented, and it's been going on for two months. Um, you know, beyond the devastation in, in Gaza, we are getting news of two, three, four soldiers dying every day. It's just this kind of awful drip of names, these young people, regular soldiers, 18, 19, or reservists who could be guys in their 40s who are, you know, who are going into Gaza to save the country and coming out in a coffin. And um this society hasn't dealt with anything like this for quite some time. I think we've become not exactly soft. I don't think we're soft compared to Western societies, but we are soft compared to compared to what we used to be. We kind of got used to relative safety and relative prosperity, and we're having to uh, accustom ourselves to something very different. It also doesn't look like it will be over anytime soon. Uh, this is a long, the arms moving and very kind of careful step by step way so it's not kind of a lightning blow at Hamas and Gaza they're working very methodically in order to keep Israeli casualties down and that means that it's it's long and it's messy and the whole time we have hovering over us the the knowledge that we have a, a threat of not just of equal weight but of greater weight on the northern border and Israelis have been evacuated from communities on the Lebanese border and and can't go back until something is done about the fact that Hezbollah has its forces on the northern border and how exactly that will be solved, we don't know, but it's quite possible that what we're seeing now is just phase one of a much more protracted war that might widen beyond Israel and its immediate neighbors. So we're definitely sailing into some stormy waters. And we had the news yesterday that the son of Gadi Eisenkot, who's a former chief of staff and is one of the members of Israel's war cabinet, of which there are five members, is that right? Four members, five members? Something Sounds like that. Right. There, there are a few who are members and a few who are observers. And I can never remember exactly uh, how many. Okay. Are it's, a small number, it's a small number of, of people. Right. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a small, it's a small number of top um, decision makers. Yeah, so he's, he's one of the most influential figures in, the, in prosecuting this war. Uh, the news came yesterday that his son had been killed in northern Gaza, I believe, which really rammed home how nobody is immune in Israel at the moment into to this awful lottery of, of, of death. Um, what impact has that death had um, on politics, on the media, and on the, the, the perception of the war? Has it made any change in Israel? I don't think it's likely to change the direction of the war, but certainly it drew people's attention. People know Gadi Eisenkot was the chief of staff. People really like him. He's just a really likable character he's not a kind of cold 
senior military command type. He's kind of a back-slapping, um, <laughs> kind of jovial character who's universally considered to be a really good guy. So um, every Israeli parent, certainly of army-age children or any children probably really felt just that, that tra tragedy. And it's kind of striking that the, the senior leadership, it shouldn't be striking, but the senior leadership of this country has children on the front lines. And that makes it very different from the leadership of almost any Western country. I mean, if you look at the leadership of the United States or the UK, most people of the upper classes or most of the pe people who deal with political activities are nowhere near the military and, and can't really imagine what it is that the military does. And it's true of journalists as well. And I, I've dealt with that as well. People who purport to be describing wars often have absolutely no idea what they're talking about or what a war actually looks like. And for Israelis, it's very different. So Gadi Eisenkot is sitting in the cabinet directing the war, knowing that his son is on the front line of the war. And it makes it very different, I think, than it would be for you know, an American president or a British prime minister to prosecute a war that is being fought by no one who he has ever met. And for Israelis, that situation is unimaginable, of course, and we just got a very painful illustration of how things are here. Well, I think the only exception I can think of to that is the British royal family, uh, who does send its members often to, to fight. And Prince Harry famously was um, conducting an interview in Afghanistan and had to throw the microphone away and run off to his helicopter to partake in a in, in a raid. But that's like you say, yeah, that's, that's very that. much the exception rather than rather than the rule. But let, let's talk about then um, the media because you used to be a journalist for AP for some years, ending I believe in two thousand and eleven, if that's right. Um, and you uh, very famously wrote a couple of essays. Uh, exposing what you saw as the media bias within the international correspondence covering covering Israel. Um, looking at the past few weeks and the coverage that has surrounded it now, how much has changed? Since I wrote those essays in 2014, all the problems have been solved. So the coverage has been really wonderful. And um, I would say flawless. So um, <laughs> yeah, what's your next question? <laughs> I was at the AP, which is the big US news agency. It's also the world's largest news organization, if you ask the AP. Uh, Reuters apparently also claims to be the world's largest news organization, but those are the two big news agencies doing a lot of the heavy lifting of news coverage. And I was there between 2006 and the very end of 2011 and um, didn't really expect to have any political problems coming from the left side of the Israeli political world. And, um, and I was quite surprised to find that um, that I did have political problems. And I, I, ultimately, I left because I felt that I couldn't write the, the kind of stories that I wanted to write. I couldn't describe reality as I saw it because I was kind of straitjacketed by this political activism that had taken over the press at that time. I think we've really seen it progress since then. And now it's taken over these same ideologies, the kind of post-colonial left. Um, it's hard to know exactly what to call it. But, um, but I think we know what we're talking about and it's not taken over much of the academy. It's taken over the NGO world, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty, and other important parts of what used to be the, the kind of pillars of the liberal West. They've fallen to kind of an illiberal, very aggressive and radical ideology. And I saw that happening at, at, inside the press. So I, I left and then in 2014 wrote these essays explaining what, what I had seen. And uh, they made quite a splash at the time. And I don't know if we said things went viral at the time in 2014, but they went viral. And 
they were widely read and, and they seem to have absolutely no impact on on the press itself. I think they, they did have impact on a lot of people who were convinced maybe not to believe what they're reading in, in the press. But um, but press coverage remains an, largely an ideological fantasy. And and you do get some right-wing ideological fantasy if you're looking for you know, certain kind of um, a certain kind of fantasy, you can find it on Fox News, you can find it, you know, the Wall Street Journal, and you'll you'll find that um, that world if you know where to look for it. What has happened to most of the mainstream press, or what we used to call the mainstream press, is that it's become part of this very ideological world that includes those NGOs and includes you know, the Imaginations and includes the, the the Academy. It's just this very ideological world that sees things through the lens of ideology and politics and not through the lens of reality. So if you don't have reporters on the ground who are knowledgeable and who are honestly just trying to figure out what's going on and explain a complicated story to people who are far away, if you don't have that and instead you have activists who are trying to mobilize people toward the correct political position, then you have a public that is completely baffled as to what is exactly going on. You have a lot of anger and kind of political mobilization rather than understanding of the complexities of of this conflict or of any other any other place so something big has broken down in the press and i think this war the last few months might be the most dramatic illustration of what has happened but of course there are many other examples that that phrase ideological fantasy that the press are or reporters are constructing i mean that's a that's a powerful way of putting it and a very non-compromising one um do you think that's really that that's really right when you look at the coverage of of the war over the last eight weeks or so. Do you do you, what what signs what evidence do you see of that? I think that what these organizations seem to want, and maybe what many of their viewers and readers want, is a simple story that is as close to a children's fairy tale as possible. So if if possible, we need a princess and a dragon. We need to know who to love and who to hate. And what makes a good news story is very close to what makes a good children's bedtime story. As journalists, we like to think that our art is completely divorced from uh, you know, the art of storytelling. In fact, we believe it to be a kind of science, right? So you have chemistry, biology, journalism, physics. You know, those are the sciences. <laughs> but if we're being honest, then, of course, news is a form of storytelling. And what makes a good bedtime story is what makes a good news story. If possible, two characters, no more than that one of them a good guy and one of them a bad guy. And you can see that the Israel story is very much placed in that in that framework. People are being told that um, this is a war by a, a highly sophisticated military against innocent civilians. That The images are illustrating that story. Um, the thrust of the press coverage is meant to tell that story. And of course, that's not at all what's happening. What's happening is that a very small ethnic minority in the Middle East, which also runs the only democracy in, in the area, is trying to defend itself from a threat on its border. And the, this is an organization that has built a military landscape that is indistinguishable from the civilian landscape in Gaza. And it's done that on purpose. So th this is a war that Hamas started on October 7th. And it's a war being fought completely on a battlefield 
of Hamas is making. And that's the reason that you're seeing what you're seeing. And, and that's a very complicated story. And it's harder to push it into a princess dragon dynamic. But that requires reporters to understand what they're seeing. It requires, it requires reporters to be skeptical of the information they're getting from Gaza. It requires people to kind of have a handle on very complicated events. And, and most of the reporters simply don't. They just don't have the tools and they don't have the inclination because a story that is complicated and full of murky gray zones will just be a less compelling story than than the story about terrible, you know, stormtroopers from Star Wars abusing, in a sense, uh, natives who just want to grow organic olives and and you know live peacefully. That's a that's a compelling story. Of course, it's completely nonsense, but that doesn't seem to stop it from being promoted. Right. I mean, you do see some very overt examples of this. I mean, I'm reminded of one, uh, the a Sky News uh, correspondent a few days ago uh, tweeted that journalists had not been allowed by the Israeli military into Gaza uh, because they wanted people to remain ignorant to their war crimes. Um, and, I mean, there's an internal fallacy in, in that statement, isn't there? Because in order to establish that somebody's committed war crimes, you need to go there and see the evidence. And uh, if you haven't seen the evidence, you cannot say that they've committed war crimes. But she uh, she sort of glossed over that. But then there are other instances where people are dealing with a very fast-moving news picture, often on the ground, making sense of fragments of information that are being pieced together very quickly and trying to communicate that to, to viewers, often under some pressure uh, and sometimes some danger. Um, do you make allowances for, for, for the pressures? I mean, as a journalist yourself, you know, you've experienced that. Do you make allowances for the pressures of 24-7 news coverage? Of course, of course. It's very hard to get it right. And I don't think that most people in the system are malevolent. And I don't even think most people in the system have particularly fervent political views. My own experience was that the key people the decision makers have a political agenda which overrules the journalistic agenda but most people are just going about their business trying to you know do their job and not get fired but um it, because of the you know the the ferocity of the news cycle and the speed you often see the kinds of decisions that people make very quickly and, and i think that often it's in the quick decisions that you see the deep psychology for example right. a week or two into the war um the Hamas authorities in Gaza flying under the misleading name Gaza Health Ministry told the press that Israeli aircraft had struck a hospital called El Ahli and had killed at least 500 people. And that didn't really make sense. It didn't make sense that Israel would have struck a hospital in the first place. Um, and it didn't make sense that Hamas would know the casualty numbers, you know, within an hour of a huge event like that. But everyone reported it. It, it yeah. something about it made sense to the press, and and everyone across the board reported it for a while. Sky News was saying it's five hundred, but it might be as many as eight hundred. Um, and then it turned out very quickly that it hadn't happened at all, as described. And and it was an Islamic jihad rocket that landed in the parking lot, and there were fatalities, but there were was, the numbers were nowhere near what had been reported and that lie was so blatant that it had to be walked back it was too clear that that hadn't happened but um, but you saw this readiness to believe it that that did make sense it's the pressure of the news cycle people have to put out a news alert they want to beat the competition they see that story i think a sane and knowledgeable reporter who's been here for a while would 
not have put that story out, but everyone did. And I think that says something about what the organizations are up to. If your job is to carefully explain very complicated events that have the capacity to inflame world opinion, then you need to be very, very careful. But if you see your job as um, kind of rushing out, you know, inflammatory stories and, um, you know, generating the political picture that suits you or your employers, then yeah, hit send on that story and, and see what happens. I'm not sure anyone was fired for it. Uh, I haven't right. heard that there were any uh, serious disciplinary repercussions for anyone who was involved in that story. I, I think once this, the dust settles after this war, which is a very terrible war, of course, and many thousands of innocent people in Gaza are being killed, I wouldn't want to be uh, understood as saying as saying otherwise. But after this war, when the dust settles, we'll see many examples, I think, of decisions like that, You know, leading the coverage with the death toll as presented by Hamas, uh, death toll that if you look closely at the numbers it just doesn't it doesn't add up in terms of what they're saying is happening and um and you know th 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 probably a few months after the war someone will do a calculation and say oh dear we seem to have you know, miscalculated a bit and perhaps some of our reporting was off but i don't think you'll see any major repercussions and i'm saying that as someone who's watched these rounds in gaza happen since 2008 with a fairly similar script each each time, although this time it is much larger in scale than the previous ones. Right. And and one example that comes immediately to mind uh, when you talk about people making decisions under pressure and their true colours coming out uh, and also the lack of accountability is the case of John Donison, the BBC reporter who famously went went rogue uh, when the hospital had been had been hit. Uh, and said that uh, and speculated that it has all the hallmarks of an Israeli strike and it's very difficult to see any alternative and it was you know suggest all all but reporting that it was an Israeli strike and the Jewish Chronicle reported shortly after that that this was the same person who had previously got into trouble by tweeting a picture of a casualty in Syria and blaming the Israelis for it in Gaza and had had to apologize for that so again we see that trend uh, threading through some of the coverage. Um, I mean, there's a deep, I think the deep flaw that you're alluding to, and we can go back as far as 2002 and the Janine massacre story. There was a, yeah, yeah. a similar incident where the Palestinians came forward during fighting uh, in 2002 and accused the Israelis of carrying out a massacre in the city of Janine, and it never happened. It was a complete invention, but it got a few weeks of news coverage, uh, much of it very credulous. And and it's the same, it's the same dynamic. There is a belief that comes to the surface in you know, situations of, of stress or situations of high emotion. Like now, there is this belief in much of the press corps that, that the Israelis are malevolent, that they're capable of murdering civilians for no reason. In fact, they want to. They're doing this and they're hiding it. And um, you, know, you could see it in that tweet from the Sky correspondent, you know, they're not letting us into Gaza because they're hiding their war crimes. Gaza's packed with cameras. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the only uh, the only body that's you know limiting news coverage in Gaza, of course, is Hamas because they're trying to hide their war crimes. But um, there's this idea that Israel is successfully uh, masking its true self. Uh, Israel has no reason to kill civilians, even if we leave morality aside. Uh, it's bad for Israel, right? It it invites international pressure. It shortens the timetable we have. To work with in this war in order to destroy Hamas. So the deaths of civilians are bad for Israel. So that of course Israel is not doing this on purpose. And yet there's this 
desire to believe that 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 that's true, and if you if we could only reveal it, and and it comes to the surface most of the time, reporters kind of have their soul, have themselves kind of in check and are managing to control their their speech, and sometimes they're not. And it happens when they become angry, or it happens when they're in a hurry, and and that's when it that's when you kind of get a peek into again into the deep psychology, which I think is quite frightening. I mean, the idea that that Jews are kind of malevolent actors who are you know, secretly um, open to uh, murdering children when they can get away with it. I mean, that's that's a very deep idea, of course, and one that has very little to do with journalism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that the example that you that you bring up of Janine from 2002 was a shocking one because you had reporters, you know, the, the most prominent reporters from the most prominent broadsheets in Britain, Times, Telegraph, etc., saying that they had seen something or that they had had solid eyewitness testimony at the very least of something that had not happened based on one person who was very flawed and a rumor and assumptions and you're right in saying i think or alluding to the the, the idea that the roots of this conception of the blood-sucking jew that that tries to kill children and cover it up has roots that are thousands of years old in fact stretching back to 1144 in norwich with the first ever blood libel um, but I think it, it might come down to it was a great a great moment of British innovation, of course. Of course, uh, and uh, but I think there's something else as well that you mentioned the word post-colonialism, um, which I've been thinking a lot about recently because the you know post-colonialism is something that informs a lot of the ways in which the progressive left thinks in academia. Uh, and elsewhere in other parts of society. But it also forms a big part of Hamas's way of thinking. You know, the, the Palestinian militancy from the 60s onwards, the PLO and so forth, were really looking at to places like Algeria, where 120-year-odd French occupation had been ended by a post-colonial radical Islamist war in which, which involved great brutality and terror against the French, forced the French into a brutal response, which was pilloried by the world, and eventually caused the French to withdraw. That's 120 years. Israel is 75 years old. And it feels like that was really the founding principle of Palestinian militancy, and it explains a lot of the cruelty and the hyper-violence of Hamas to this day. Of course, Hamas is boosted by extra f Islamic fanaticism, but nonetheless, it, the, 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 they're trying to get rid of the Jews in the same way as the Algerians got rid of the French. And that post-colonialism is, is shared by people in the progressive left, but also is at the foundation of Hamas. Don't, don't you think that's right? Yes, I mean, I think that's that's part of what's going on. I, I see Hamas as fundamentally a religious group, and I think that they're quite open about it. I think that often Western people have trouble with that because the West has become so secular. And, and often I think when I speak to to Western people who are religious themselves, you know, Christians who are very fervently, you know, involved in their faith, they have very little problem understanding Hamas. You know, Hamas has scripture and they think God is speaking to them and they want to do what God, what they think God wants them to do. And, and that makes sense to a religious sensibility and less so to a, to a secular sensibility. And then we kind of come up with other reasons for, for what they're doing. I, I definitely think they do draw inspiration from stories like the French in Algeria and from the, you know, the, the end of the colonial powers in the Middle East. And, um, but if you look at their, you know, their founding charter, for example, or even at their, at their discourse, the, including interviews with their leaders over the past two months, they're, they're very clear about what, what this is. This is, um, it's about religion. 
there can be no sovereignty of non-Muslims in the Islamic world. The murder of Jews is not only legitimate, but desired by God. And, um, you know, they will do October 7th again and again and again until their religious script plays out in the way they want it to play out. And I think we have to listen. I mean, I think that many Israelis just did not want to hear that. You don't want to believe that that's true, right? We would like to believe that Hamas ultimately will be practical. They have to, you know, run the lives of two million people in Gaza. Eventually, it's just going to, you know, it's going to click that they need to do that, and, and and that will be really what they want to do. But that's not what they want to do. That's not how they see their role in the world. The role in the world is to be the sword of Islam against the infidels and to create an Islamic caliphate that includes Jerusalem and that uh, has no Jews in it. So, and, and they're quite open about it. One thing I like about the Hamas guys is that they're very honest about who they are and what they want to do. And I think that we just have to listen. I think it's our mistake. I think in many, in many ways, October 7th was our mistake. I think we need to look at ourselves and ask, how did we let this happen? And, and think less about the enemy. The enemy told us that's what they were going to do. The question is, why Why did we ignore him? Right. I mean, you're absolutely right. I didn't mean to downplay the Islamism at all. In fact, I think that uh, in actual fact, in addition to this religious fundamentalism and fanaticism, uh, there's also the influence of Nazism, isn't there, uh, for, from the Second World War. And we see that in the Hamas Charter that cites the Protocols of the Elders of Zion and other Nazi uh, ideas. Um, but let's move on just for the last few minutes to talk once again, or move back to talk once again about our friend Leonard Cohen. Um, because that was about morale, wasn't it? And and uh, and right now Israel seems to have a lot of morale. In fact, one poll a couple of weeks ago showed that Israeli optimism had actually increased since the war rather than decreased. Um, what are your thoughts on, on Israeli morale? What, where does it come from and what does it need? Do we need another Leonard Cohen tour? I mean, what, 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 can, what can people do to help Israeli morale, uh, even though it's you know, as, as, impre- as impressive as it already is? Well, Leonard, if you're out there and listening to the podcast, <laughs> man, we could really use... A concert. <laughs> I really, I, I really miss that voice. You know that deep, really kind of just sensitive and spiritual voice. I think it would be it would be amazing for us right now. And it's too bad that uh, that Leonard's gone. Uh, I guess we could try to think of some equivalents who might uh, be able to lift the spirits of of Israelis at this moment. But I can't really think of very many. And uh, I can think of uh, of even fewer who would actually want to come and identify with Israel. You know who would? David David Draymond would. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, who famously, the singer of Disturbed, who covered The Sound of Silence so brilliantly and virally. He's a, he, I think his mum lives in Israel. He's very, very, uh, a very big supporter of, of Israel. He might do it. Right, similar well, voice as well. Similar voice. <laughs> um, the the uncohesiveness of Israeli society and the kind of forward movement of Israeli society is something quite quite remarkable. So after the, the war breaks out, we really have this feeling that the government has disappeared, that there's a day, October 7th, when it feels like there is no state of Israel. And these thousands of terrorists are wandering around the country, slaughtering people, and the army isn't there. And it takes, in some cases, more than 24 hours for the army to get there. And then afterwards, the prime minister disappears for a while, and the government just isn't functioning. 
And into the vacuum comes this incredible mobilization of Israeli volunteers, including, interestingly, the protest movement that had been protesting against Netanyahu for a year leading up to the outbreak of the war. Overnight, the protest organizations just turn into kind of social welfare organizations, and the same volunteers begin housing all the people evacuated from the Gaza communities, feeding them, feeding soldiers. Uh, people show up for reserve duty to, at, at such a rate that the army does not have enough weapons to give all the soldiers who are showing up to, to join the army. So you have this incredible surge of volunteerism, and, and that, that probably explains the optimism. There's something about this society that is incredibly energetic and cohesive. And I think that there's a deep depression in Israel at the moment. There's a real fear about what's going on. It's a terrifying time for people. Death is present all the time. And we're just waiting for the, you know, the next ax to drop and um, or the next rocket to fall. And it's, a, it's an awful time. Uh, but it is a time when Israelis feel common fate. And, and we feel like that there's no one to depend on except ourselves. And, and that glue, I think, is very powerful. Will it be enough to get us you know, through the next 10 or 15 years? No, we will need a functional, creative, political leadership that can put the society back together and move forward. We do not have that at the moment. Um, I think there's much to be optimistic about when we look at Israeli society and very little reason for optimism when we look at the Israeli political system. And, I, you know, like many others, hope that we're going to see a real change after this war. There's clearly going to be a lot of political upheaval after the war, and hopefully it'll lead to something better than we had on October 6th. Right, and just the, the final question before I let you go, uh, Matty, um, about the media. People often ask me, um, where's the best place to turn for proper reporting of Israel? Um, aside from the Jewish Chronicle, of course, um, what what would you recommend to people? I think the Jewish Chronicle is all you need. <laughs> um, not just for Israel, probably for any area of knowledge you're interested in. That's, <laughs> that's what I'm supposed to say. Right? <laughs> um, I think for Israel, if you're looking for you know a really good wrap of the daily events, the Times of Israel does a superb job. Um, the editor of the Times of Israel is David Horowitz, who's a veteran journalist, a really excellent journalist. And, and, and the Times of Israel has really just become, I mean, it's my go-to website. I could check any number of news sources in Hebrew, but I, I use the Times of Israel just because I find that it's the best. So I would definitely recommend them. Sometimes there are good reporters working for organizations whose Israel coverage is generally terrible and you can find them. You just have to know their their name and kind of look specifically for that byline. So I'm not saying that everyone who works at every organization is terrible. It, it's always a good idea to look for people who could who know how to speak Hebrew. Um, you know, if you want someone who understands Israel um, or, you know, if you're looking for someone who understands the Palestinians, speaking Arabic would be a pretty good idea. It's actually shocking how seldom Western reporters speak the languages of the countries that they cover. And if you told someone from the UK you know, if I presented myself as an expert on the UK, but I couldn't speak English, any <laughs> any Brit would think that was hilarious. But often the people reporting other countries are, are just that guy in another country. So that's a way of finding the good people, the people you can trust. And um, in general, we're forced to navigate a blizzard of disinformation and, you know, political nonsense that's being pushed at us from many different direction sometimes by people who don't even realize that's what they're doing and that's just unfortunately a feature of living in the world in 2023 and we're just going to have to deal with it 
Right. And I, I think that in Britain, the uh, the right wing media, weirdly enough, uh, are, well, not weirdly enough, there's a, there's a reason for it. We won't go into that. It tends to be um, more accurate. Uh, the Telegraph has been great. Sunday Telegraph in particular has been great. Um, the Daily Mail has been, been good. The Sun has been good if you feel that way inclined. Um, and, and it really is the, the, the left wing voices that dominate um, broadcasting on the whole uh, and the left wing press that where, that where things begin to get a bit more problematic. I, I agree. I, I, you know, I'm on the left in terms of my own political sensibilities, but when I consume news about Israel in Western, uh, from Western media outlets, it's usually in the more right-leaning outlets where I'll find information that makes much more sense to me as someone who lives and reports here. And it's not necessarily true on other subjects that I'm interested in, but it's certainly true on this subject. And, I, and the reason for that is, as you said, interesting and complicated and maybe worth a separate podcast episode. Well, maybe uh, soon we'll speak about that, uh, Matty. But for now, that's all we have time for. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, I'll just remind uh, uh, podcast listeners that you can also watch this on YouTube and YouTube viewers that you can also listen to this on on the podcast. Um, Matty, thank you again. And I hope you, you, you join us for another chat sometime. Thank you again for having me. You've been listening to the Israel War Briefing from the Jewish Chronicle with me, Jake Wallace-Simons. Join us next time for more insight and analysis from leading experts.